Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Human Side of Dev. I am Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Ro Oof. Welcome, Ro. Good morning. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm pretty good. I don't know how it is where you are. Portland, it's starting to get into spring, and I'm really ready for it. Do you still have snow on the ground there? Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's not normal for this time of year, is it? Uh, it's a little late. It's yeah. not as late as last year. Last year we had snow in April. And, and for those listening, we're recording at the beginning of March. Yeah. I am uh, in the uh, Denver area and we tend to have snow until May. So My condolences. <laughs> oh no, that's why I moved here. I love this snow. <laughs> ah, okay. Then congratulations. Ro, would you mind introducing yourself for our audience? Sure. Uh, my name is Ro Oof. I'm a principal software engineer, and I have been doing computer programming stuff uh, since I was about six. Been doing it professionally for around 25 years. Nice. What what kinds of things have you been working on in a professional capacity? So I've worked on uh, everything from like large backend systems, built something designed to ingest around 5 trillion events per day, like actual on in customer hardware on prem to uh, satellite terminals to just a ton of web stuff. I've always been full stack doing front end and back end. You mentioned doing full stack. Was, was this all in, in web applications or was this uh, some on hardware local applications as well? Yeah. So I've done things in a ton of languages like Visual Basic and C and Fortran uh, to run like on hardware. Uh, as well as uh, things that's running like containers, Java, Node, Go, Rust in the back end. But I've always done web stuff. I started doing web related things uh, in 96. I missed the dot com boom as far as employment goes, but I was around for the development of a lot of this stuff. So, like, I remember when CSS came out and it was a big deal. <laughs> that's where like I've always continued to do the web things, even while I end up doing other stuff. And a lot of my programming stuff has been weird, unusual niche things. Like I used to write Perl programs for windows that got compiled into a single like executable blob that you could just give to someone and run it. And it would run it as a command line tool <laughs> or I wrote my own email program using Win32 APIs in Perl because that sounded like fun once, which was a terrible <laughs> idea. So uh, stuff like that. I did, I, I think the craziest thing that I've ever done is in an attempt to drive a front end tool, I actually ended up putting Fortran inside a PHP extension inside Apache <laughs> that then drove jQuery to render SVGs. <laughs> that feels like a very turducken approach to, to coding. The alternative was the way that previous version of that had worked, which was shelling out from PHP to run a Fortran executable, uh, which okay. occasionally would get stuck in a loop and fill up the server's hard drives, which I didn't really, since I was also on call support for that because I was the only one that could operate it, I really wanted that to not fill up the hard drives anymore and i was like how can i fix this that's a really interesting approach to solving that i i'm fascinated like how what what brought you to this point of writing in this more more niche way at the time 
I had an economic model written in Fortran that I had to pass data into and get the output from and then render that on the screen. That was really the entire purpose of that particular system. So when I tried to figure out different ways to do that, like I couldn't transpile the Fortran into something else, realistically speaking. It was a large model. It was around 400,000 lines of uh, Fortran, if I remember correctly. I, I got to hook that up to the web somehow. <laughs> and all I have is, you know, mid-aughts web servers that, you know, we didn't have Docker containers and Kubernetes back then. So I wasn't very easy to wrap that as just like a a microservice that I could call. So I had to integrate it somehow. And the rest of the backend app for that or the rest of the app for that backend was written in PHP. So it's like, well, let's see if we can jam these things together. <laughs> and you end up doing like fun things. So the Fortran array model is reversed. It's like the order of elements in a multi-dimensional array are reversed from C++. So you have to like do transposition to figure out what's going where and then make that work with PHP. <laughs> That sounds like quite the project. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I technically, I think I won, an, I won an award for either that one or the previous one. The previous one was worse by a lot because the ask was make our web application in 2003, make our web application work offline from a CD on oh. Windows 2000 and Windows XP. So I ended up using Visual Basic and access and i literally scraped our pages pulled the html off of them stored them in an access database used them as templates created an embedded instance of internet explorer intercepted all of the web requests so that it never actually went out to the web and then did all of the processing internally that one actually did shell out to a fortran application that was shipped along with the visual basic <laughs> And then showed those results. Thankfully, that one didn't have any graphs. It just had a bunch of text that came out of the model, in, which was mostly like a thumbs up, thumbs down. You should do this. You should not do this. That's amazing. As 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 you're as you're telling the story, I can I can totally see myself in that position. Think you know, thinking along the same lines. How do I how do I make this thing work? How do I jam these te different technologies together? And at at some level. That's something that still happens today. I was I was at a company one time where we had to scrape XML that was malformatted and intended very much for C sharp into a Java application and convert that into HTML. There was another where we were scraping we were we were just straight up scraping HTML to get links in order to provide a search functionality because the team maintaining that page couldn't provide us an API. Um, Ouch! And that sounds yeah. That sounds painful. It's just. As you were as you were describing this, and I was thinking about those experiences, I was also thinking about how so many technologies today are more designed to be interoperable than they used to be. Specifically, thinking of Rust and WebAssembly, you're, it's it's fully intended for Rust to run inside a browser, and it's it's not as much a hack as it used to be to to put two different languages together. I was in a meeting earlier where where an engineer was experimenting with compiling Haskell into C and then importing that into Ruby so that you could run Haskell inside of Ruby because they have that common ancestor of C. Wow. I'm not sure how to respond to that. I mean, like, that is the exact kind of thing I would do. But I have learned over the years of having done that to try to avoid it whenever possible 
I would really prefer not to have to do that kind of thing. I do think it's interesting that we do have some languages that are effectively designed in a way that they're already portable across different runtimes. Closure is the one that comes to mind because you have Closure and Closure Script. Closure Script is fully self-hosting, runs in a JavaScript engine and executes Closure. That was actually sort of my entry into functional programming. Started following David Nolan, who worked on Ohm, which was a bridge sort of between React and Closure Scripts, which was very interesting. And that kind of led me down some interesting paths with cross-compiling and building stuff for the web and other languages like Rust, which eventually landed me a job a few years ago. So I'm, I'm curious, going back in time a bit, hmm? what was it that interested you about this, this kind of meshing of different technologies together that led you to creating these, uh, these applications and, and continuing to be interested in that concept today? I think for me, I've always been interested in the edge cases and not just the edge cases, but like what's possible sort of at the edge of a language or edge of a technology. So some of the things that are fascinating to me now that I don't do, <laughs> I just haven't ever been in those particular fields or areas is like some of the stuff like ray tracing in the latest games and what you can do to push photorealism. I find that really fascinating as sort of an intellectual exercise but also as a, a way to sort of explore what's possible with the thing that you have in front of you. And I guess I do the same thing in all areas of my life. So when I'm not doing computer stuff, I'm interested in mostly working with my hands in some way. And that could mean uh, woodworking or metalworking. I do a lot in the kitchen. I have a lot of really unusual tools in the kitchen, and I like figuring out new things that I can use those for. So an example is I have a commercial deli slicer, which is a little unusual for a home kitchen, but I have discovered a ton of interesting uses for it. And the two that jump out to me that are the most unusual are making pickles because you can slice the cucumbers very consistently and very quickly. In the same thing with bagels, you can make bagel chips very quickly. Or if you wanted like really razor thin sliced onions, that deli slicer works really well for those tasks. Finding those same things in the computer, it's like when I was working and writing those Perl programs for Windows, the question was not what's the best language, but what's the most effective way for me to get this done? And is there a tool or a technology that would allow me to do this faster and more consistently and produce better results? And it turns out that there's a company called ActiveState that maintained a, a Perl version for Windows. But when you bought their license, one of the things that it came with was a bundler that created a, a self-extracting executable that had the Perl engine, all of your code and all of the Perl modules that you needed. And so I could write a program that would take, for example, Fortran source code and then output that via PostScript or a PDF directly to a printer on Windows from the command line when the previous version that was written in C stopped working because you couldn't use the the line printer interface in DOS anymore. <laughs> right. So it's like this stopped working on this version of Windows and we need to find a solution for it. How long is it going to take and how quickly can you give it to me? I need to distribute this 
to a limited set of people. That software wasn't sold, but it did need to be run by a small number of people around the country and around the world that had the rights to use it. It was in an academic environment, and we needed to ship something that allowed you to print input, output, and source code. And so it needed to be formatted in a particular way and have line numbers and all sorts of other things. And to make all of that work, I could write all of that very quickly in Perl because I was very proficient at Perl at the time. It ended up that that was the easiest way for me to get that out was to use this other system that's kind of obscure, but worked great. Like it solved the problem. Eventually, I kind of moved to try to do things in a more mainstream way. But what took me two days to write in Perl would have taken me six weeks to write in C Sharp. That's just C Sharp isn't a great text processing language or PDF processing. Like, you know, so picking an appropriate tool and then also finding the edges of that tool, like how can I use this in, a ver- in very effective ways to get the job done for whoever I'm working for? That makes a lot of sense. I, I, I've done similar with a programming language that I feel more proficient in and, and more comfortable in for certain tasks in that mm-hmm. I am notorious for plugging Elm into everything that I can just to prove that it works and just to see what the benefit is there as opposed to somewhere else. So have you plugged Elm directly into Rust using Wasm yet? I have not done that one yet. Uh, that's okay. on my list. Rust Rust itself is on my list of things to learn. So I haven't, I haven't done too much. I, I've, I've studied enough Rust that I wrote a basic function. I compiled it using V and I ran two plus two or whatever in the browser and it made me okay. happy. And then I, and then I moved on with life. So my my former gig, they actually used a fair amount of Rust in the browser, and no one at the company knew Rust. That this was a very strange company. They they tended to pick technologies, I think, for fad reasons that no one at the company knew how to use, including Mongo. Their entire database was Mongo, and it had been for years, and no one had actually taken the time to learn how to use Mongo well. <laughs> that was one of the many reasons I left that company, but. <laughs> Not Mongo specifically, but that no one knew how to use the technologies that they had decided to build their core product on. And they were like, hey, do you know Rust? And I'm like, I know of it. And they're like, can you fix this bug? And I'm like, I'll try. And then it turns out the person that had written all of their Rust was learning Rust at the time. Wrote a bunch of crates on their own as helpers and then abandoned them. And I had no way to update them. And so it's like, okay, now I'm learning a language by reading someone else's beginner code to try and fix a bug, which I did end up doing, but was a terrible experience. Learning Rust, though, was fun. I like, so I know we're going to get to this later, but my favorite language is JavaScript. I love JavaScript. Not TypeScript, JavaScript. I have a personal intense dislike for TypeScript. But not because it's typed. I just, for whatever reason, don't like the way TypeScript works. I don't like the ergonomics of using it. But I do like t- strongly typed languages. I also like duck type languages, which JavaScript is. So I like JavaScript and I also like Go. But I also really enjoy Rust. Rust is fun partly because of the type system. I hate the borrow checker because everyone hates the borrow checker because you're like, I, I swear I did this in the right way. And they're like, not quite. <laughs> you tried to mutate something. And I'm like, 
but I didn't mean to mutate that. I meant to, I meant to make a copy <laughs> or, or have the result of that not be mutated. So it's helpful in those ways. And I really enjoy that. But the expressiveness that I can get with JavaScript really just things seem to flow for me. I've also been doing weird JavaScript. I guess like the theme of my entire career with programming is what can I do that's super weird? One of the technologies that I think is very underutilized in some ways, and I don't blame people for this because XML sucks, but it's DAV. I have written an entire CalDAV calendaring client in JavaScript using jQuery back in the late aughts. It does everything, and it does it all in the front end by making all these weird HTTP calls, like prop find and report, and you log in directly through the web browser. Like It does everything for you. And it's like, that's not something that most people end up doing, but that led me to like, hey, this web audio API is kind of new. I wonder if I could do like a prop find request to find every MP3 and then make a web player if you put it on DAV. And it turns out that yes, but that's not actually as fun as you would think because you just have a list of file names. So I wrote a HTTP range request based ID3 tag parser to read the tags out of MP3 files and parse them. So doing all the binary stuff in JavaScript that runs in the front end. And it was a ton of fun. And it's like most JavaScript programmers have never done any kind of bit banging related stuff directly in JavaScript. But then that set me up for later on when I, I ended up writing an SNMP implementation in Node in er, the early Node days. I think this was 0.6. Node was pretty, kind of flaky in a lot of ways at that time. But it's like, you can listen for UDP requests and, and make UDP requests, and that works great. And so you can have a full SNMP implementation running on your network in JavaScript. And it's kind of weird that you can do that. And those were the sorts of things where when I had time to explore, that was what I did. And then somehow I turned, I pivoted my career into doing that sort of professionally. <laughs> It's always fun when you can do that and take take the thing that's your your absolute interest and and is able to help you focus and yeah. turn that into your job. Yeah, yeah. I, I I remember my my earlier experimentation with Node. I've been doing PHP for years, and I I finally switched to JavaScript and Node. And one of the first things I was thinking of was, you know, I'm making this game. I was making a game at the time, just like a two player game. It'd be really cool if you could have a LAN connection between the two players, like in the olden days, instead of having to be online and using Steam. Right. And so I, I, I can't tell you exactly what I did, but I, I set it up so that a host client instance would be spun up within Electron that was just Node, and it was listening on a port. And then the other computer would be scanning the network for that port on all potential connections and then report when it found an IP address. And with that, the two players of the local network were able to play. And it was just so much fun to put those technologies together. I'm sure that the Electron folks would be very upset to learn that a node process was hosting something uh, inside of an unprotected application. But this was early days for Electron too, so it wasn't protected. Right. And it was just so much fun to to put together and prove that this was something that could work. Yeah. So the the thing I was building with that SNMP was network management software. 
And I had it running in Node and WebSockets were new. So I had a WebSocket interface to the browser. And it was the coolest thing in the world. While I was working on it one day, the printer that we used at that office had a, a jam of some kind. And it threw a trap to my server. And I saw it immediately in the browser and then got up and walked in to the room where the printer was and helped the person fix it. And they were like, how did you even know? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, it's complicated. <laughs> Surprise. Computers told me things. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they're like, I mean, you know, especially when people aren't used to that, that was the strangest job because I did everything. I was IT support. I wrote software. I probably spent about half of my time writing software so that I didn't have to do as much IT support work, but I was also the system admin, the security person, like anything involving compliance, I was responsible for handling. And this is a small research center. Uh, I think I supported around 30 people tops the whole time I was there. And it was delightful. I really enjoyed working there, but for whatever reason, I just decided that the best way to handle things was to automate as much of my job as I possibly could. At, at the beginning, my boss kind of got onto me because I was, he would see me walking around talking to people. And I, I was well known for walking around with my coffee cup in my hand. I would fill my coffee cup and then I would just go see my users. And one of the things that I really learned, and this has really informed my web development, is I would walk around and see each user, and I would ask them, hey, how's it going? Is there anything with that you're doing on the computer today that's not going the way you want or that's frustrating? And then I would show them a way to do it faster, easier, or in a less frustrating way for them. And that really kind of has informed everything since then. I eventually told my boss, I'm like, look, if you see me furiously typing away at my computer and we don't have a programming project for me, something's wrong. <laughs> I'm fixing it. If I'm walking around with my coffee cup, everything's going great. And the reason you hired me was to make all of your people not have problems. And so what I'm doing is making them not have problems when I'm walking around because everything's working perfectly. And it took a while, it took a bunch of repetitions for that to set in, but eventually it did. It was interesting, apparently when they replaced me, that that was not how my replacement operated. They kind of freaked people out for a while. They're like, they never saw that person. They're like, there must be a ton of problems because we never see them, <laughs> which is sort of the opposite of what you typically expect of IT. I really like that approach of getting hands-on and watching and, and helping the, the people who are actually working with the, in, their, in your case, hardware at the time, but also software. It's, it's something that as web developers, especially when we're working on side projects, we don't think about nearly as much mm -hmm. because we're, we're just coding for ourselves and we're just, we're just having a good time. And then as soon as you want to show it to somebody else, you want to add the second user or a 10th user, they're going to run into something that's totally unexpected because you haven't been doing that. You haven't been checking in. You haven't been following. And it's so important to get that feedback as soon as possible to make the, the experience as smooth as possible. Yeah. And figuring out where those rough edges are to, to be able to smooth them is the, the real challenge that we have writing software for other people to use. Like if you're writing an autonomous bot, like a web scraper or something, you are like, who is your audience there? Your audience, I guess, is technically the, the data output. And so one of the things I put 
so this is at the the top of my resume is I like to create software and tools that people like to use that brings them joy in some way or makes their lives better. And it doesn't really matter what that tool is. So I was working on a system that was designed to be deployed on customer hardware in Kubernetes. And I was responsible for the backend side of that primarily. There was some internal tooling where you could view like a dashboard and some of that dashboard stuff was third-party software that I didn't really have any control over, but some of it was going to be used by data science people. And so understanding that that was my audience, it's like, how can I make that data science person's life easier and better? How can I make it so that the thing that they're trying to do is the obvious thing to them. Not everyone thinks in the same way. So you need to figure out a way for it to be obvious for whatever type of person that is and however they think. Some people are visual learners. Some people are auditory learners. Some people need to read. Some people need to actually experience and have some hands-on. So if you can build a REPL as well as data visualization, so that you can have multiple outputs for them to see the thing that they're working on or ways to interact with it, you're gonna make their lives better and they'll appreciate whatever that is. And if you can find a way to do that without spending a lot of effort, then uh, everyone will be on board with it and you'll make people a lot happier. So it was trying to figure out ways to do that, to make that person's life easier. It's the same thing when you're writing software that's going to be a library, you want to have good documentation, but you don't want to have so much documentation that it's impossible to find something, right? And there's a balance there. A lot of software engineers, programmers in general, don't like to write documentation. And so documentation tends to be more concise, more confusing. I have, I worked on a a project for a few years that used an FRP library called Bacon, which is similar to RxJS, except the documentation was some of the most concise, shortest thing. The, like the descriptions were the shortest possible description that actually told you everything you needed to know. But that actually made it very difficult to understand. You had to have very high cognitive function on the day that you were reading that documentation to understand all of the specific details. So when you went in and there was a problem, it was very difficult for most engineers to actually figure out what the problem was from reading the documentation. And that's not good, right? That conciseness is like, it's the documentation version of writing something really clever in code. (laughs) And when you're really clever in code, you're running a great risk that no one will be able to understand what you wrote, including yourself later on. Yeah. And last week's episode uh, with Ben Myers, we were talking a lot about documentation. And one of the, one of the points he made is, is working towards having developers uh, fall into the pit of success. So guiding them in the way that everything, just by following the, the, the most natural path, everything would work out the, the correct way and providing the documentation to help with that. And I think it's so important, both both from a documentation perspective, like we're talking about now, but also, as you were saying with users, being able to set up the interface so they will succeed in whatever it is they're trying to do because it's obvious. Sure. But you also need to address multiple audiences with that documentation. 
I like specifications personally and not for everything. Like, I don't think the specification should be the only documentation. I think you should definitely have more documentation than that. But I was actually frustrated when I first started learning Rust because I had learned Go in about a weekend. I started reading the specif- the, the actual language specification on Thursday. And by Sunday, I didn't need to read the language specification at all because I knew enough of it. I understood how it worked that I could just sit down and write code. It might not have been idiomatic. I mean, it took me, I don't know, a month or two to really pick up like idiomatic Go at the time, but I could read and understand as well as write Golang in a very, very short amount of time. And when I picked up Rust, I'm like, cool. I know some like Rust developers and I've talked to some of the like people that built Rust online. There should be like a language spec for this somewhere where I could like read the spec to understand how the language works, how the macro system works. And there really isn't. There's a lot of documentation and it's very wordy, but there's not that actual like, here is the exact specification if you wanted to implement your own version of this. Here's the keywords. Here's how it would work if you wanted to write a parser. Like I want the description for to be able to write a parser for the language. Like that was what I was really after. And I've written a bunch of parsers and I wanted to go do that thing. And it just wasn't available because there is no documentation like that for Rust or there wasn't at the time. That meant that it took me a lot longer to come up to speed. And that was like a frustration and friction point for me in picking Rust up itself. If I hadn't had to do it for work, I probably would have stopped at that point. If it was just for fun, it's like, well... I don't really need to do this. And this looks like way more effort for me than I want to expend if it's for a fun project. I think one of, so there's another language that I like the language, but I hate the development experience of, and that's C-sharp. And C-sharp, I think is a wonderful language, but it's been absolutely destroyed by the incompatible versions, in particular library related things. Like if you want to Google something, you have to know that the documentation that you're looking at is for the specific version that you're trying to use because string handling changed in the core libraries a bunch of times early on in C sharp. And it made it very frustrating. It's like I would find some code on stack overflow and I would paste it and it wouldn't compile. And I'm like, why isn't this working? And it turns out that, you know, it's just a different version of the .NET Core Lib or some string library or something else. And now that's better, but it's still not great. And then you go look at Microsoft's documentation and it's either not technical enough and it's like sort of a fluffy overview or it's way too technical and it's too dense and it's hard to find the particular thing you're looking for. And that the skill of writing that documentation, I think is highly undervalued in our industry. And everyone agrees that that's the case, right? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I completely agree because yeah, you're right. It's, it's a thing that we all need. It's a thing that we all know is often lacking. Right. And that doesn't mean we all have the skill to do it. Yeah, I am not a good UX designer. I understand the terms and how you're supposed to work. But the creative portion of that, that makes things good, I don't have. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, 
I can spot a good UX and I can criticize a bad UX without a problem. But coming up with a new one all on my own? No, that's not happening. I need someone else to do that. And that's okay, right? Like, I mean, there's very few people that can be successful at doing all of the tasks related to doing, uh, delivering a final product. Like Stardew Valley being created by one developer, the music, the art, the engine, the distribution, the the money side, that is extremely rare to have one person that can do all of those things. And I mean, we should love that. But I also, I think we tend to lionize that in our industry and say, this is what everyone should aim for. And I don't think that's good. I don't think that's fair. I think it hurts a lot of people in the end. Being like a, a, a polyglot programmer where you can write 20 different languages is fine. I don't think there's a requirement but that's also not the same as saying everyone should be able to do these basic tasks in their in all of these different specializations. The one I think there's one place in particular around like full stack or back-end web development that most people agree we don't need to do that. And that's the one I think most people should learn, and that's SQL. <laughs> like you should be better able to understand your data model and data engine, most people just sort of push that off. I think that's the the only place I've ever really found where it's like, oh no, you don't need to know how to do any of this as sort of a, a generalization across the industry. <laughs> yeah, it's looking back on the, the history of our industry, it's fascinating how SQL remains the standard. Like obviously there's other things like Mongo or... Uh, other document databases or other structures that can be used. But so often you're going to either use MySQL, Postgres, SQL Server, Oracle database, you know, it, it, it's going to be pretty common at the jobs that you're going to be getting. Every other language has changed so much. I mean, we've been talking about Fortran, Perl, Go, C Sharp, JavaScript. Okay. There's one that hasn't changed hugely that often doesn't use SQL directly that does the same things as SQL, and that is COBOL. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> because because COBOL was designed to be the complete solution around that, right? It's I'm you're gonna you're gonna define record structures uh, that are input and output, and you're gonna define the queries that go between them, and that's what the language is for. <laughs> but I think that's the exception. Like I don't think there is anything else like that. It's all just basically comes back to SQL, even things that aren't proper SQL databases. Cassandra has CQL and it looks very similar to ANSI SQL, but it's not. And a lot of the things that you would want to do don't work. Like don't do a join, just don't <laughs> in Cassandra. But it's, it's, I do think you're right. I think it's interesting that they co-opted the SQL language for that because it was familiar and ergonomic for developers to use, even though the sort of subset and deviations that they're using are very limiting and constraining, you can still meet all of the needs for Cassandra users by using that interface. So I'm, I'm curious, since you have worked on uh, so many different programming languages, mm -hmm. and each language, for better or for worse, has its own interface with SQL, be that an ORM or a way to write SQL that avoids any injection attacks. 
I'm curious what your opinion is, just based on your experience, of how the different languages handle that communication layer, ORM versus writing pure SQL. Again, at the language specific level, I'm just I'm just curious what your what your what your experience has been. You unintentionally, I think, just named my favorite library in Node for working with databases, which is PureSQL. For anyone that hasn't used it, it's inspired by YesQL, which is a closure library. And instead of an ORM, what this does is it has you create a separate file that has all of your queries in it. And then most SQL systems allow you to put a comment in. And this takes that and says, okay, you have to do a comment similar to um, a lot of the function documenting systems in programming languages, where you specify the interface for the for the function and like put your documentation that's going to be compiled into something outside of the programming language. It uses that so that you can name queries and that uh, you can name parameters and other things like that. Pure SQL is not as nice in some ways as the yes as SQL, but it's still, I think it fulfills that purpose very well. And it also gives you a separation between the queries that are interfacing with the database and the source, the, the program that you're writing that's going to use those queries. It gives you a very nice separation there. So you could actually take that SQL file and give it to your DBA they could manipulate it, make changes for you, and they give you a SQL file back that you could just drop into your source and continue to use as long as you updated for you know any changes in the like parameters, input, output kind of thing. And I like that significantly better than I do an ORM. For really basic CRUD things, an ORM is fine. For more complicated tasks, an ORM means that you're learning a whole new system to interface with a database. And every time you change languages or libraries or ORMs, you have to learn that all over again. And I think the reason ORMs is popular is because so many people don't actually like SQL at all. Like they're like, how can I find a way to get around using SQL? And they end up with an ORM. I think the only thing that ORMs are actually useful for is type information. And when you're in a more strongly typed language, and I don't really like writing backends in strongly typed languages. I really prefer something like Node with pure JavaScript or PHP, which is like typed, but not strongly. <laughs> the other thing I think is it really does conflate things. So it's like everything that I'm doing is source code and it's programming and it's all in one language. When in reality, it's really not because there's this intermediate language that you're actually using to query the data engine, whatever that is. And so you end up fighting that system at some point when if you had just started in SQL from the beginning, there would be no, you might be fighting, but you're fighting your schema, the actual design of the database or performance problems in the database software itself. And those things are all, you still have those when you're using an ORM, but then you have the additional problem of that being translated into the query language and then trying to fix that query in some way when you run into a problem. And I think it's a communications issue in a lot of ways, right? So it's like another developer is going to come in and they've never used that ORM system, but they know SQL. 
So now they're having to learn that and they're having to learn to speak it in both code that's executing stuff on the computer that's actually building that recipe. But the query that you're building with an ORM is also communication to other engineers and, and developers that are going to work on your system. Since it's all compiling down to SQL in some way, shape, or form, why not just use SQL? I don't, I don't think people see that as like, oh, this is a separation of concerns that I should be dealing with. So like when you're building a backend app, like you, a lot of people use the OOP paradigms, even if they're not writing direct OOP, right? It's like model views and controllers or model view model. And thinking in those terms, that should still be a separate concern. So you're isolating all of your ORM code into individual classes and other things, and then you're consuming those somewhere else. And so you think you're separating those concerns, but then you, you've you added an additional one there. Putting everything in a separate file, I think works really great. I also tend to, I am an anti-OOP person now. Yay. Which is actually why I don't like TypeScript. It's one of the reasons I don't like TypeScript is TypeScript is really designed for working with classes in a way that JavaScript doesn't. TypeScript is like, I want to encapsulate these things and then I can't like duct type them together. If you write in a more pure functional style with lots of really short functions that get composed together, those things are far more testable and types are less of a concern. And so TypeScript doesn't actually help you as much there. It can, but you're not, you don't have all of this additional typing information that is related to classes in these data structures. Data structures are great. So what I usually end up doing is just like, I think separating SQL out into its own separate file that you then sort of reference and load in, I sort of try to do the same thing with data validation. So actually using JSON schema and validating everything you get back from your backend API and validating everything that you're going to send to the backend actually finds most of your type bugs pretty easily, right? And it, and it gives you a cleaner way to throw an error that an engineer can understand. So you received a reply from the backend to a query and you validated it and you know exactly what piece of data is incorrect. And you can tell them, this is the problem, not instead of having to go through the code and find the error of how it came in or, or wear it through because something was null and it was only expected to be an integer or a Boolean. That's one of my favorite things about working with Elm as well, because you have to do that parsing layer when you're ingesting JSON, because JSON is just a string. Right. And if you, if you want to use that as, as anything in Elm, you have to transform that into Elm types, which requires a parsing step. And you mm -hmm. will know, oh, oops, I sent a string and it was supposed to be a number or I sent a number, it was supposed to be a Boolean. I guess zero is not actually a valid thing because in Elm's case, falsy is not an, a concept. Sure. My only complaint about JSON is there's no date type. That would be lovely. Yeah. Um, um, we, we we are reaching the end of our time. And before we move too far from the SQL discussion, I wanted to, to throw out to you because you were commenting on having a preference against strongly typed languages on the back end. And I, some. Some. I, I'm, I'm going to counter with, I know a strongly typed language that provides a way to write pure SQL inside of it on the back end, and it's lovely, and that is Haskell. 
there is a package that we use at work called Postgres typed, uh, PostgreSQL typed, which lets you just write SQL inside of your Haskell. And then when the data is ingested, it is the correct type because the, the Haskell compiler itself is scanning your database to make sure what types are there. And it, it makes working with the database very nice uh, in that environment. So what I would like to see is to do that, but to actually have the queries live outside of the source code for the language. So if you could put the queries in a separate file, that's like a .sql file, reference those queries, but also get the strongly typed part, that would be great. It does get a little confusing with Postgres in particular because Postgres's type system is extremely flexible and difficult to parse without implementing the full Postgres parser, which is why so many systems that do this kind of thing want to connect to your database to scan your schema. Yep, it's true. So that does lead me to something I would like to plug. It's terrible. Don't look at the source. Just look at what it does and see if it's useful for you. If you use a database, in particular MySQL and Postgres right now, and you do database migrations using something like Flyway, or if you're in Go Goose, uh, there's a ton of database migration systems. But if you version your schema in any way, and you do any kind of CI, or if you have a stakeholder or customer that would like to actually see the changes between the versions, I wrote a tool for that. And it generates entity relationship diagrams that show diffs. So it will show added columns, added relationships, removed relationships, removed columns, or changes to column types. It will also pull for MySQL and Postgres. It will pull all of your stored procedures and actually generate diffs for those as well. And it stores all of its output in a single HTML file that you can put into asset pipelines so that when you're looking at uh, something, you could actually upload this back to GitHub and you could click on it and you could actually see the differences in the, those diagrams. Uh, it makes it very easy to share this sort of stuff. And it's meant to be as flexible as possible as far as integrating into these pipeline systems. So uh, it's called uh, ERDIF, it's on NPM. I'm not interested in plugging this tool in particular, but there's nothing else like this out there as far as I'm aware. And if anyone is, please let me know. Awesome, I'll make sure that's in the show notes. And that's cool. just ERDIF, D-I-F-F, correct? Yeah, yeah. It should be okay. uh, uh, the GitHub, I think, is InMotion Software. Cool. Which I wrote while I worked for them. Because a client was like not understanding how our changes would look to the database whenever I would like write them out in English. And so I tried writing them out in code, and they didn't like that either. And I'm like, okay, well, I got to solve this problem in some way. And I thought, surely, this tool would exist. Like... How can I show the difference between two databases? Oh, this is really cool. I'm I'm going to play with this. Yeah, it's just a little command line utility. The code is terrible because I wrote it in a hurry. And then someone else was like, hey, I could use this. Can I like write some stuff to fix it? And I was like, please. And uh, then I have never gone back and cleaned it up and made it something that's more maintainable. It's the, uh, the curse of software development. When you write it quickly, it's going to be the dependency that lasts forever, right? Yes. Absolutely. But I, I like this sort of thing where this is a fully isolated piece that you can compose together. So it's like the sort of 
code slash infrastructure version of functional programming, right? It's the, the Unix philosophy of make a small tool that does one thing well, and then only do that thing. Don't keep adding stuff to it. I will say that the, the diagrams that it generates are using graphviz, and they get really funky looking sometimes. Um, and I am not enough of a graphviz user slash expert to figure out how to make them not look funky. That's fair. Cool. Uh, as we are wrapping up, Ro, and you did already answer what your favorite programming language is, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tweak my question. What is your second favorite programming language? Oh, oh, that's tough. I'm gonna say Rust. I really like Rust. I wish I got to use it more. I think I think in order it would probably be JavaScript, Rust, and then Go, and then after that I don't really know. <laughs> I like all of the programming languages that I know. I don't, I wouldn't want to do all of them professionally. Like I would not want to be a COBOL programmer, but that's not because of COBOL. It's because of the environment that you use it in as not one that I want to be in. So if I were purely picking just on, on the language and how expressive it is and how I feel when I use it, I definitely say Rust. Perfect. Thank you so much. And as we're wrapping up, how can people find you if they have any questions or want to continue the conversation with you? I have a professional website that's uh, oof.dev and a personal one that's oof.gay. And I am on Mastodon, but my Mastodon is personal, often not safe for work. So be very aware um, if I don't really post about programming things there. I don't have a blog or and I'm not on any other social media. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much again for joining us on this episode. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I hope you all enjoyed this discussion as well. You can find me on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. You can find me on Mastodon at Lindsay K. Wardell at mastodon.social. You can find this website at humansideof.dev. Again, hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you again next week. Bye.